The title of my message this morning is Sovereignty and Suffering. Sovereignty and Suffering, two things that uh, in the um, mind of many people uh, not only do not go too well, but are uh, in conflict. That if there is a human suffering, particularly suffering on a grand scale, uh, there cannot be then a sovereign good God. Either God is sovereign and not good, or He is good and not sovereign, or He does not exist at all. Um, but He cannot be both sovereign and good, and there be things such as pandemics. Uh, David uh, Barker uh, wrote a recent article in response to COVID-19, and uh, the, the title of the article is, Does God Cause Pandemics? Does God Cause Pandemics? And he says this, Is God in some way behind the current coronavirus pandemic? Is he sending us all a warning? Or is it just an example of life being out of control in a world full of problems? Well, that's being uh, debated in Christian circles. Uh, a few weeks ago, Tom Gombus, a professor of New Testament here at uh, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, he answered that question with an article of his own entitled, God is Not in Control. And Gombus says that the nature of Christian hope is not that God is in control. To say things like, God is sovereign and in control of this situation, end quote, is not, he says, a faithful representation of how Scripture portrays God's sovereign kingship. And so Gombas' argument is that, uh, yes, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is ruler, but he's not the ruler of this world, but the ruler of the world to come. That God has given authority of this world over to men, and men in their sin have invited the devil into the scene, and uh, God allows men and the devil in this world to do what men and devils do. Uh, so consequently, we, we cannot rightly say that God is in control of this world. It is actually not in his control. And that our hope is that one day we will uh, die and go to heaven um, where Jesus actually is ruling. That's the nature of Christian hope. Uh, so consequently, Gambus would say that God is not in any way behind or responsible um, for what's happening. He does not cause pandemics. Well, that will seem reasonable to many uh, Christians, professing Christians. It will seem reasonable for two primary reasons. Uh, one is that if, if we just look at the world that we live in, it does not, to the human eye, appear to be a world that is being run by loving, good, omnipotent, all-wise, heavenly Father. Because you don't have to look very far. And you see devastating, random tragedies, car accidents that rip families apart and, and snuff out the lives of, of, uh, of young people, uh, vicious rapes and murders, devastating tsunamis that kill thousands and tens of thousands in a moment, earthquakes that, uh, that, that bury people alive, hurricanes, pandemics. You see, all these things would seem to argue that that. Whatever is behind this world, it cannot be the sovereign, mighty, omnipotent hand of a good God. 
That'd be the first reason an argument like uh, Gomez's might make sense. The second is that it seems to get God, quote unquote, off the hook. That, that if, if we can say that, yes, Jesus is Lord, but he's not ruling over this world, he's ruling over the next world, um, then we don't have to try to reconcile sovereignty and suffering. We don't have to try to explain to people how God actually is running this world and is all-powerful and is all-good, something that seems very difficult. These things are, seem difficult to reconcile. We can just say, as many have said, well, God is good, but he's, he's not in control. He wishes it were different too. That the best God can do is empathize. And he does empathize. But he's, he's not in control. Well, this morning we're going to hear Job's thoughts on the topic. In the setting, as we said, uh, Job is responding to the speech of Zophar. It's, um, Zophar's speech is the third, and it is just a recapitulation of the same general theme that uh, Bildad and Eliphaz have both been uh, harping on, and that is the, uh, this idea of what we've been calling the system. Uh, this, this theological, philosophical framework with which these men come to Job and counsel him out then of that framework. And, and the system um, teaches that the moral universe runs along very simple lines. God is sovereign. He ordains everything. God blesses those who are good and punishes those who are evil. Job is suffering, and Job's suffering is prima facie evidence that he sinned. doesn't need to be argued. It proves itself. And so their counsel continually to Job is just repent. This isn't hard, Job. Just acknowledge your sin. Zophar says in chapter eleven fourteen. If iniquity is in your hand, and, uh, then put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and not fear. The reason your life is in shambles, Job, is because you've got injustice in your tents. If you just put it away, well, we know God blesses the righteous. Well, Job, in his response, uh, responds in... Uh, Two different ways here. First with a rebuttal, verses 1 through 6. And then with an affirmation, verses 7 through 25. He begins his rebuttal with a sarcastic response. You see, his, his friends are acting like Job is clueless as to the way the world works. They don't, they, he doesn't understand God. Uh, he, doesn't under, he doesn't understand the system. Uh, but they do. They have wisdom. Uh, they have this figured out. And Job responds to that, you know, just sarcastically. No doubt you are the people and and wisdom will die with you. It's going to be a sad day when you men disappear because um, that will be the end of wisdom in the world. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Remember, this is Job talking. Who does not know such things as these? That the wisdom they're bringing is, it's nothing new. It's, it's not even that deep. And Job uh, sarcastically rebukes them. You see, his argument with the system and with their counsel then is that it ignores the actual facts 
in his case. They're not paying attention to to who they're talking to and to the the reality of Job's life. Verse 4, I am a laughingstock to my friends. I, who called on God and he answered me. That means um, I had a relationship with God and it was a good relationship. In fact, when I prayed, God responded. We know that God does not answer the prayers of the wicked. I called to God and he answered me. I, a just and blameless man, not sinless, but blameless before the law. I am a laughingstock. That's the facts of the matter. And Job's argument, you see, is that the system cannot account for the actual facts of his case. Because the just and blameless man who had an intimate relationship with God is now derided and scorned. He's he's as one from whom men hide their faces. He's a laughingstock. And the system can't account for that. But not only does the system not account for Job's experience, it doesn't account for the world in general. Job says in verses 5 and 6 that... that, um, Verse 6, the tents of the robbers are at peace and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. In other words, just look around. If God unfailingly blesses the righteous and unfailingly punishes the wicked, why are the tents of robbers at peace? How, why are those who provoke God with their idolatry, why are they secure? They're not sitting in the ash heap. I am the just and blameless man. You see, the system just doesn't account for the world as it actually is. And then Job moves to an affirmation concerning the full sovereignty of God. And he begins, verses 7 through 9, by pointing out that this doctrine, this truth, is so, it's, it's so indisputable. It is such a fixed reality that even the animals know it. Ask the beast, they'll teach you. The birds of the heaven, they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth. And they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? So these men come to Job and they said, Job, you need to realize God has done this. And Job's response, if you study the Hebrew here, is uh, duh. Who doesn't know that? Everybody knows God has done this. Not only people, the the fish and inanimate objects, all created reality, acknowledges the sovereign hand of God. And then Job goes on to to lay out the, the fullness of that sovereignty, that God rules sovereignly over every aspect of this world. And he gives several different spheres. So over life and death, verse 10. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So whether you take your next breath or not, that's in God's hand. Uh, God is sovereign over natural disasters, verse 15. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. Droughts and floods don't happen by chance, but by God withholding and sending God is sovereign over political and religious leaders, verses 17 through 19. 
And just notice the action. Who's, who's doing the acting here? He, God, leads counselors away. Judges, he, God, makes fools. He, verse 18, God, looses the bonds of kings. He, verse 19, leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. God, 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 and God. God uh, makes foolish the wisdom of the wise. God overthrows the mighty. God does all of this. Even regarding nations, Verse 23, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. You study your, your world history? Well, who made Persia and Greece and Rome and America great? God did. And who brought all those nations, Persia and Greece and Rome, to their knees? God did. And, and who has the sovereign power and authority to do the exact same to our country? God does. God does. All these things are from the hand of the Lord. Who does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Job believes this. What he can't understand is why. Why has God dealt so harshly with him? You see, it is not the reality of divine sovereignty that troubles Job, but the mystery of it. He cannot understand why God is doing what he is doing. It, it, it does not fit with what Job uh, had believed when he had adhered to the system. You see, what Job's three friends refuse to acknowledge in the presence of Job's suffering is there is a vast mystery to the sovereignty of God. The, the most wise thing they could have said was, Job, we have no idea what God is doing. We don't know. But you see, their system places God in a neat, tidy box, and then they, uh, it allows them to label the events of life in neat, tidy categories. God is just so much like a machine. He, he spits out blessings for good people and spits out judgments for bad people, and, and you, just, you just hit your button. You hit the right button, you get the blessings. You hit the wrong button, you get the curses. But you see, that is a gross misrepresentation, Job is saying, not only of the facts of life, it is a gross misrepresentation of God. There's a mystery that we can't just explain away. Well, and the Bible tells us that, doesn't it? God says that. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, verse 9. And you see, there's a mystery to the sovereign purposes and ways of God simply by virtue of the fact that God is God. It's, it's just part of God being God. That, that He's not comprehensible to us. We're creatures of the earth. And, and, and consequently then, when God appears to Job at the end of the book and speaks to Job, we're going to find that God does not explain his sovereign ways to Job. God doesn't say to Job what we know from chapters 1 and 2. He doesn't say, Job, I just want to tell you what happened. The devil showed up. I asked him if he had thought about you. He charged that the only reason you worshiped me was because uh, I did all these good things for you. And so in order to prove that you were righteous and that he was wrong, we had to do this. It's not what God does. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? You see, he just, he just 
reveals the glory of his deity. He invites Job to consider the vast, mysterious reality of God as God. And he just keeps on going on that theme. And when he's done, Job doesn't say, yes, but. When he's done, Job has no more questions. In fact, he, he repents. Chapter 42, verse 3. I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I, I didn't know what I was talking about. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job didn't need the answers. Seeing the reality of God as God was enough. In fact, it brought him to repentance. Brought him to a restored place. Just seeing God as God. Now the question that I have for us this morning is why did God give us this book? Why do we have the book of Job? Well, God did it for a reason. Did it for a purpose. God wants us to have a better understanding of what he is like. He's revealing himself in the book of Job. And that's why we stand in a different position than Job, right? Job doesn't know about chapters 1 and 2. God tells us about the events of chapters 1 and 2. God wants us to read the book of Job and to, and to see the life of Job and the suffering of Job with a little more insight than what Job had. And insight specifically into the way that God sovereignly rules the world and, and some insight then into the character of God as he rules the world. And that's two things I'd like to, to look at and to close with. I'm going to read and summarize a bit from one of my very favorite books on the topic of suffering and sovereignty of God, and, and that's uh, When God Weeps by Johnny Erickson Tata. If you've never read that book, uh, I just highly encourage you to pick it up. It's, it's readable, it's, uh, it's clear, and it's written by someone who knows what she's talking about. When God Weeps by Johnny Erickson Tata. She asked the question... Uh, Consider the um, suffering of Job. Who caused Job's suffering? And she points out that we could identify, and the book of Job identifies, a variety of causes. That God's sovereignty isn't this simple, just monolithic thing, but that there's, there's, there's various causes we could point to. For instance, natural, natural causes, natural forces. Lightning strikes and windstorms are clearly involved. Likely nothing that we would call miraculous. She says a weatherman today could look at the meteorological data and explain the high and low pressure systems that caused these devastating weather phenomena. So we could look at the life of Job and say, what, well, what happened? And, and, and uh, from the Bible, we could say, well, lightning strikes destroyed all of his sheep and the servants. And, and then this devastating windstorm like Chattanooga saw this past week came and just destroyed the home where his children were celebrating. And now they're all dead. That weather, bad weather, natural disasters killed Job's children. And it would be true. 
Absolutely true. We can also uh, point to the cause of uh, evil people. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans who stole all of Job's livestock and killed uh, all the servants that were protecting them. These are uh, men who clearly had no sense of carrying out some divine plan. They were just doing what their own wicked, callous, greedy hearts wanted to do. And they were very happy with what they'd accomplished. There's, there's going to be no doubt that uh, that night as they sat around the campfire with all of Job's um, livestock and now in their possession, they, they congratulated each other. They're responsible, you see, for their actions. They chose them freely, and one day they will answer before God for them. Evil people caused Job's suffering. Well, we could also talk about Satan. Satan is clearly involved. Uh, we're shown that in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, God gives Job into Satan's hand. That's what we're told, chapter 1, 12 and 2, 6. And the devil goes to work. Now, exactly how the devil is involved in the weather, we're not told that in Scripture, but Johnny uh, suggests that it seems that he at least sponsored the storms. But he's clearly responsible for the actions of the wicked men. We know that the, uh, the devil is... Um, has enslaved men to do his wicked will. Paul speaks of, of uh, Satan as the god of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that uh, we are all dead in transgressions and sins and, and uh, we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. People who are defined by disobedience, which is everyone apart from Christ, um, are, are, are sons of disobedience because the, there is an evil spirit at work, the devil. The Apostle John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan is clearly involved and at fault, and he will also answer for his actions on the last day. But fourthly, we also have to acknowledge that God is at work. That's what Job says. Who doesn't know that the hand of the Lord has done, has done this? Without taking anything away from the reality of the other causes or the culpability of the other actors, the fact stands that what happened to Job happened according to God's purpose and will. God is the one who directs Satan's gaze to, Sat Satan's gaze to Job. God did that. Have you considered my servant Job? A God is the one who gave Satan permission. All that he has is in your hand. God is the one who set the borders. Only do not touch his skin. Or only do not touch his life. And so we, we just have to, without denying the agency of any of the other factors, realize God is the first and fundamental cause of what happened to Job. And the book of Job is bookended with those truths. And so if you remember at the beginning of the book, the awful things happen, and Job immediately recognizes and embraces the truth of sovereignty. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then when his health was stolen from him, he says to his wife, after she encourages him to um, curse God and die, shall we receive good from the Lord and shall we not receive evil or trouble from him? Are we only going to worship God when he brings sunny days? Will we not worship God when he brings 
The dark days of sickness, disaster, even death. You see, that's how the book begins. And the book ends with the same affirmation. It doesn't, in a sense, get resolved. So at the end of the book, we realize, oh, God is not responsible. Job 42, verse 11, we're told that then all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, they came and showed him sympathy and they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. That's how it ends. Now, there's two specific things I want you to notice, and this is just put your thinking caps on a bit. Uh, this, this, these are deep truths, but I think they're really important truths. When we think about the relation of God's sovereignty to suffering, we know that God's sovereignty, His primary sovereignty, in no way detracts from the reality of secondary causes. You can read your Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, verse 2. The secondary causes are real. In fact, the secondary causes are ordained. So God ordains the weather, and God ordains the Chaldeans, and, and even the, the devil, right, to do what the devil did. And yet, weather was just being weather. A, a, a meteorologist pointed out to you. And the Chaldeans are just acting like wicked people act. And the devil is acting perfectly in accord with what he wants to do. He freely chooses everything that he does and says. And, and so uh, they are all responsible, the, the wicked men and the devil himself, they are all responsible because they freely chose their actions, and yet they all are unwittingly carrying out God's sovereignly ordained purposes. But that means then, you see, that, that means that as Christians, we're not wrong to assign culpability to freely acting agents in this wicked world. So we don't simply shrug at tragedies and, and, uh, and evils and say, Allah wills it. It doesn't work like that. Because there are active agents, the devil and wicked people, and the, and the results of a fall in creation itself, we can grieve the eagle, the evil of wicked men. We can lament the tragedies of a fallen world, all the while holding firmly to the sovereignty of God. That's an important principle because it, 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 it sometimes is rejected. That we, people, because we don't know how to reconcile these things, we, we just say that they're not reconcilable. Uh, I remember John Piper uh, preaching a sermon I, I, on Job in general, but um, he quoted from Ralph Winter, and I don't have the quote here with me, so don't hold me to it. Ralph Winter, a godly good man, but who um, was watching his friend Charles Colson, uh, uh, Chuck Colson's daughter, had an autistic child. And she wrestled, her name was Alexis, she wrestled with this and, and, and Colson publicly praised her when she finally said that my autistic child is exactly the way that God wants him to be. That God has done this and there's a, there's a goodness even in the hardship and the heartache of it. And, and, and Winter uh, re rebukes Colson for that and says the idea that God would desire or design a, a brain damaged child is incomprehensible and abhorrible abhorrent. It, it can't be true. And, um, and not only that, but, but if you believe that God has sovereignly done this, it's going to undermine any desire to join with all the other parents who are trying to figure out what is this disease and, and how can we get rid of it. It's going to, it's going to um, rob you of the, of the initiative to go out and make this world a better place. And Piper says, I, I 
fundamentally deny both of those things. Those things are not true. It's not true to say that God could never wish harm or hurt or something less than ideal for his children. His own son, Jesus Christ, would be exhibit A. But the Bible is full of examples. Christ has called us to suffer. It's explicit. It's not plan B or C. It's plan A for his children. But also, it doesn't, it doesn't you see, it doesn't, we don't have to drive a wedge between hard things, grievous things, and the sovereignty of God. Remember, Jesus, the Son of God, wept over Jerusalem, didn't he? Grieving their unbelief, grieving their blindness, without in any way undermining or losing sense of his own sovereignty. Who blinded the eyes? Of Israel. Well, we, the devil did, and they did. Yep, that's true. And the Bible will also say that God did. In just response to their chosen and stubborn unbelief, that God finally said, okay, then be blind. Now, these are not easy things, but, but it doesn't, we, we can't fix it we can't solve the problem by just jettisoning sovereignty. If you read the Bible, you just realize that nowhere in all of Scripture, not in Job, not in the Psalms, nowhere in Scripture will any author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit try to get God off the hook by denying His sovereignty. God never apologizes for who He is. Isaiah 46 verse 9 uh, verse 9, I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. So God declares from the ancient times, he declares what's going to happen, not simply by virtue of foreknowledge, the fact that he's able to look into the future, but notice what he says, saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish my purpose. The reason God can foretell from ancient times what is to happen is because he's willed and purposed it. That's how he knows. And that's why it happens. God says that is who he is. I am God. Now that's a great comfort to those who know and love the Lord. Johnny says, think of the opposite. Think of if it were not true. He says, what if your trials were not screened by any divine plan or ordained by any divine purpose? She says, first, the world would be worse, much worse, absolutely intolerable if the devil's actually left free to roam. Left to his own, the devil would make Job's of us all. The Third Reich would have lasted forever. Your head would be mounted on Satan's wall above his fireplace. That's quite descriptive. Your head on Satan's wall above his fireplace. If Satan is in control. Piper says it positively this way. If God is not sovereign enough to ordain and superintend and direct the suffering he allows, then he is not sovereign enough to rescue us from them or comfort us in them. There is no comfort to say God has nothing to do with this. 
or at least it is not the best comfort. Getting God off the hook leaves you with a God that isn't in Scripture and can't do anything more in your life than empathize. That God is not a rock. He's not a refuge. He's not a redeemer. And so the Bible doesn't ever go down that road. It doesn't try to get God off the hook. Comfort, you see, will not come by trying to discern the divine purposes of God, but by discerning the true character of God. That's where Scripture leads us. The Bible doesn't tell us much about God's reasons for what He does. And you can think of instances in your own life where I'm sure you have questions. Why did God allow that? And wise people will say, I don't know. There could be millions of reasons God allowed that. Not just for your life, but the life of your family and your friends and the community, maybe, maybe for, 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 for generations yet unborn. Think of, think of the ripple effect of Job's suffering, the impact that this, this book has had in the lives of God's people through all the generations. He's a contemporary of Abraham. So, so we don't know, and the Bible doesn't give us details about specific purposes. But, but it does give us, it's, it's full of revelation about the grand purposes and in a way that reveal the character of the God who purposes, who makes the purpose. So I was reading Romans 9 this past week and I, and I came across something I, I know I've read a hundred times if I've read once, but I, I did not notice this thing before. Paul in Romans 9, as you know, is discussing the absolute utter sovereignty of God over salvation. That before the children in Rebekah's womb were born, before they had done anything, good or evil, God says, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And hate not being God just dislikes him, but that God is not going to show favor to him the way he does to Jacob. And, and Paul makes it clear, God does this because God chose to do this. But that isn't all that he says about God's sovereignty. It is not just a cold fatalism. Notice what he says in verses 22 and following. He says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make, his, make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. And I know that 90% of those words just went right past you. If you have your Bible, you can go there right now, but let me just break it down quickly. You can study this later. Paul first says that God has a desire. God desires to show, magnify, manifest to the world, to the hosts of heaven. He, mag he, wants to, he desires to show two things, his wrath and his power. Now, why those two things? Why not his wisdom? Why not his mercy, grace, love? Well, the reason is because God's wrath is the evidence in a wicked world of his goodness. Good people hate hateful things. They hate evil things. A good man hates murder. He hates uh, unfaithfulness, perversion, lying, stealing. A good man by necessity hates those things. 
You see, what, what God is, wants, desires to show the world are the two things that the world is most specifically charging him guilty of, that he is either not good or not powerful. And God hears those charges. He knows that's what people are saying about him. That he's not good or he's not powerful. If he's God, let him save himself. Let him come down from the cross. He's not God. He has no power. So God desires. He has this desire to show the world the truth as they blaspheme God and charge him with being not good and charge him with being not mighty. But he doesn't exercise that desire. What he does is he patiently endures vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So God, he desires to show that he's infinitely good and gloriously mighty, but he doesn't. He patiently endures. He looks into this world and he sees all the evil, hateful, perverse harmful actions of men and women as they desecrate his creation and blaspheme his holy name. He, in, he patiently endures all of it, the Hitlers and the Stalins and all the greedy, seedy thoughts and attitudes and actions of every human being. He endures it, all the God-denying wickedness in, in the world. Patiently endures it. Why? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. If, if we have a sense of the offense of men and women made out of dust and made in the image of God and for the glory of God, pointing their finger in God's face and charging him with not being good and charging him with being a weakling, not worthy of worship, not worthy of adoration, and they cast him to the side. If we have a sense of the weight of the offense of that, you see, then, then we'll, within us there will be a re, re, uh, revulsion. Like this cannot be allowed to endure. God, why do you let this happen? And the answer is because God wanted to make known the riches of his glory to you. He wanted to show you the riches of his glory. And for that, he needed to send his son in the fullness of time. And that son needed to come as God in human flesh. And though he was God, fully God, he patiently endured the scorn and the derision of wicked men. He was one as whom men, from whom men hide their faces. He was the laughingstock, God, the laughingstock of wicked men in order to make known to you the riches of his glory. God has a desire that supersedes even his desire to protect the glory of his own name. He's willing to patiently endure wickedness and sin because he desires to show you the riches of his glory in a new heaven and a new earth. He could have shut it down after Adam and Eve sinned. He could have just said, that's it. He could have left it alone after the flood and just been done with it. But all the sin of all the ages, God patiently endures because he desires for you to see Jesus face to face and to dwell with Jesus forever, experiencing all the riches of the glory of God. 
So the Bible doesn't tell us everything about God's purposes, but it tells us enough that we can know God's character. See, Paul's first words there are very important. What if? What if? What if God? What if God is actually like this? What if God actually does this, desires to glorify his name because it it needs to be magnified and glorified. But what if he patiently endures the evil and blasphemy of men, including your very own, temporarily hiding his goodness and his power because he desires to show you his infinite riches and glory? What if he, God, is willing to suffer and even die in his son at the hands of wicked men in order to show you how good and how mighty and how full of love and grace he is forever and ever. What if God is actually like that? What if? Is that enough? What more would God need to do to convince you that though you do not understand all the details of his sovereign purposes, you know enough to be satisfied? You know enough for hope. You know enough for joy. You know enough for peace. If God is a God who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all in order to show us the vast riches of his glory in grace, then how will God not also give everything that we experience our good how will he not graciously with him give us all things even suffering how could he possibly if he has given us his son if he's willing to patiently endure in this way in order to show you the riches of his glory how could God possibly allow anything into your life that would undermine his beautiful saving loving purposes in Jesus so you see the Bible doesn't tell us everything does it it doesn't try to explain God to us we couldn't understand it if it did But it explains that the God that we know is a God who's been manifested and revealed to us in Jesus Christ, the Son, His Son, who died on a cross for our sin because God wanted to show you the riches of His glory forever. May that be enough. Amen. God in heaven, we are just stunned and humbled. We've stuck our finger in your face. We've charged you with not caring. We've charged you with making mistakes, not paying attention, not being fair. We've grumbled and complained. And all of it in the shadow of a cross where God was willing to be made man and to bear our sin to suffer our death so that we might know the riches of your glory. And we put our hand over our mouth and we repent and ask you to forgive us. And then, oh Lord God, may this truth now change how we think, how we feel, and how we live. I thank you, O Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us to be utterly sovereign and infinitely good. And I pray, Lord, that then we would have joy and peace in believing it. 
that we would not fear disease, we would not fear unemployment, we would not fear death. Because Jesus Christ is our sovereign Lord and He's our rock, He's our refuge. And the God who ordains every molecule is our heavenly Father who loved us and desires to show us the riches of His glory. And so, Lord God, teach us to love you, to trust deeply, profoundly in every detail of our life the sovereign, loving hand of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.